All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. So happy to see new faces. Welcome. If you are new, if you're out there online and this is the first time, special welcome to you. Wherever you are, if you're new, I want to both welcome you and apologize to you at the same exact time. Because if you're not used to the kind of teaching that we do here, it might be something that's a little hard to get used to. We are in a series in the life of Job. So right away, a lot of people, if you haven't been following along with the series, you might be going, oh, great. That's what I needed is a whole nother time to sit down and focus on pain and suffering and perseverance and and punishment and great. That's exactly what we all wanted, right? But that's what we're going to get. No. You're not going to get that because the book of Job isn't about that. The book of Job has been so misunderstood that that's what it is. It's just pain and suffering and misery. And a lot of people, if they read the book at all, will typically read the first couple chapters and then jump immediately to the last couple chapters where it gets good. Anybody read a book like that? A lot of people do. But then there's so much in there that we would miss. So much that we would miss. So, yes, pain, suffering, perseverance, all those, those are all parts of the story of Job, but really what's important to know is that there's a reason for it. It's not just pointless suffering. We look at the world today, and one of the questions people would ask is, why does God allow this? Why would God allow the world to be so out of control? There's pain, there's suffering, there's death, there's crime, there's all these things. How can, if God is who you say he is, how can he allow all these things? Well, the book of Job seeks to answer those questions, but spoiler alert, it doesn't. What it does is it gives us a way to think about them. It gives us a way to look at the life that we go through and God's sovereign role in it. And maybe more importantly, it helps us understand the true sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is this. He doesn't have to tell us why he does what he does. He chooses to reveal some things to us in the word, in scripture, by the spirit. He will reveal to us what he wants us to know. But there are things that we can't ever know. And we need to be okay with that. How much easier would your heart rest? I know mine would if I was able to just truly say, there are things I'm not going to know. And I'm okay with that. That's ultimately the place where Job has to get to. So let's get into this book and let's find out what's there. And here's what I think. I think throughout the whole book of Job, if you missed any of our previous messages, as Pastor Gabe said, you can go back through the website, uh, pretty much through any platform that you're watching it on or directly through our website and go back and check the archives and you can watch any of the previous messages in this series. But especially, I think the first few really lay the groundwork for what's happening. And so for those of you who maybe haven't been following along, I want to take a second. So Job, Job, Scripture starts right out where God just says, Job is upright and blameless. He's a good guy. Job is my guy, in fact. I love Job. He is an amazing guy. Job is well off. He's healthy. He's got a big family. He's a successful, successful businessman. He is well respected in his community. He's really pretty much got everything going on that you could want to be going on. He's got a good relationship with God, hears from God, senses his presence all the time. In fact, what we see is that, that when he no longer senses God's presence, it's 
a definite jarring thing for him. So we know from that that he sensed God's presence pretty much all the time on a regular basis. So he had all these things going on, and then this giant calamity befalls him. And if you know, even a a cursory uh, glance at the book of Job will tell you that, okay, Job's minding his own business, and then God pretty much says, Job, come here, and kicks him out in the path of this steam train that is the devil and says, have your way, right? Most people who know anything about the book of Job pretty much know at least that part, right? Here's what we don't really understand in most cases is we have to look a little bit deeper to see what's going on here. God wasn't trying to punish Job. God, in fact, in his sovereignty and his omniscience, knowing exactly how Job would respond in this situation, chose Job to throw him into the path of Satan and say, Satan, have your way. See what you can do. Knowing full well that God in his sovereignty, when we're promised in Scripture, God will use all things for the good of those called according to his purpose. God is calling Job for his purpose right now. He's saying, I'm going to offer you up to Satan and let him have his way with you because. And Scripture doesn't say this explicitly, but the subtext is there, and we see this throughout. God is going to use this situation, number one, to teach Satan a lesson that you can't do anything. You have to follow the rules that God lays down. But even more importantly, Job, who was in this place, again, he's, he's blessed, he's well off, he's really got everything he could possibly want. At some point, though, our temptation is to start thinking, I got this life figured out. Right? Again, it doesn't say that in Scripture, but we can just figure out at some point. Now, Job prayed for his children. He interceded. He did sacrifice. He did all the things that he was called to do. But at some point, human nature, he'd go like, pretty much got this life figured out. People come to me. They want advice. I got all kinds of money. I've got everything I could possibly want. Really? I got this figured out. God's using this situation to say, Job, not only do you not have it figured out, but you won't get it figured out. And not only that, but there's a little bit of pride in you, a little bit of rough edges that need to be knocked off of you before you are exactly who I want you to be. And so God is using this situation, this trial that Job is going through to elevate him to this place of of desperation, of need for intimacy with God. And more so, maybe even a realization that like, I don't want to not hear from God. Because he's used to that. Now all of a sudden he's, he's so terrified that I no longer hear from God. I no longer have his guidance. I want that. I crave that. And I want to get back to where I'm hearing from God. That's a lesson that Job might have to learn. Like how much that means to him in his life. So God's going to use this situation to elevate him. Let's go forward now. Let's go forward. Last week we had entered kind of this new phase in the story of Job. So for the first 27, 28 chapters, it's a back and forth. Job is suffering. He's literally on a, on a trash heap outside of town. He's lost his family, his house, his business, his health. He's lost all these things. And he's relegated to the trash heap outside of town. He can't even come into town. He's not even worthy of being among people. And Job's friends travel from all over 
to visit him. Three friends in particular, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, they come from all over to come, and their point is, we're going to come and comfort our friend because he's hurting. Very well-intentioned, very noble goal. They want to come and they want to do that. The problem is, in this day and time, they didn't have an understanding of the new covenant of Jesus. They didn't have an understanding of even the old covenant. They were under a different system. What they had was sacrificial and patriarchal, different kind of systems that they worked in, but basically it was saying, if you do the right thing at the right time, hopefully you're going to be okay. And it's the best they had. So when Job's friends were traveling, it says in Scripture that they got together and agreed, let's go talk to Job. So they went to Job. And they had to travel from a long ways away. So as they're traveling, you can just imagine they're talking like, hey, what are we going to say to Job? What do you think happened to him? How do you think this happened? They didn't have email. They couldn't text. Like, Job, what's going on with you? They had just heard that he was going through these things. And so what they're thinking, what their theology at the time, what they're thinking is, man, Job was such a good guy. What did he do to cause this? What did he do to bring all this calamity upon him? That's, that's the only thing that made sense in their limited theology. Remember, they're basically their theology boiled down to this. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. Pretty simple. Not entirely wrong, but it doesn't cover the fullness. Certainly has no place for redemption or for grace. It doesn't have any room for those kind of concepts. It's, it's very, very limited. That's all they had, and it didn't paint the picture of what was going on with Job. So they get to Job, and, and Job is asserting his innocence. Job says, I, I haven't done anything to bring this upon myself. Here's the problem. That doesn't fit the narrative that they want to hear. What they want to hear is Job go, I messed up, guys. I, I did the best I could, but then I started lusting after this woman. I started doing, and then they can say, okay, stop doing that. Get back on the path with God. Everything will be good. Aren't you glad we came? See ya. And they can go home. Problem is, Job won't admit to anything like that because there isn't anything like that. And so they're trying to take this, this round peg of their theology and fit it in the square hole that is what's going on with Job, and it doesn't fit. And rather than to say, hmm, it doesn't fit, let's see if we can find another explanation what they do is what many children do or what I would try to do. Let me get a tool and see if I can whittle this round peg into more of a square. Or better yet, let me jump up and down on it and see if I can force it into that hole. So we spend 27 chapters of his friends trying to force their theology into Job's situation, and it's not working. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth they go over and over again with Job asserting like, I haven't done anything to cause this. And eventually he comes up, and in the last couple chapters, he goes, he goes, look, I was the man. God gave me everything. I had everything I needed. People would come to me for advice. They would practically bow down in front of me. I had everything. And then God took it away, and now here I am, and they just laugh at me. So that's really the end of, like, all I know is that I had it. Now I don't. I don't get it. And he's struggling. And we know that this bet between, between Satan and God is if you quit giving him everything that he wants, everything that he needs, giving him this life of comfort, he'll turn on you. 
but God has also said, I'm not going to interfere. Have your way, Satan. Do what you want. The only thing you can't do is kill him. That's, that was his only ground rule. You can't kill him. So God is forced by his own doings to say, I'm going to stand back and let Satan have his way. So God cannot, by his design, cannot interfere with what's going on. But what he does is in this time of weakness, this time where you can see Job just kind of like struggling, like, uh, I'm about to lose it, but I don't know where to go from here. God sends a messenger. And we're going to see that. This is, this is where we are. Job 32, this is last week we enter this new chapter of a new guy. See, up until now, we've just seen the three friends, right? And then last week, we're introduced to this new character, this guy named Elihu. Elihu comes out of seemingly out of nowhere. We find out he's been there all along, just sitting in the back kind of quietly watching what's going on, not saying anything because he says here, I'm the youngest. You guys are older and wiser. I was letting you handle it, but clearly you can't. You can't figure it out, so now I want to speak into this. So all of chapter 32 last week, in fact, it starts out, Job 32.1 says, Then these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. They couldn't convince Job of any crime or to admit to anything. Now then we get this fourth accuser, Elihu. And so last week we started out, Job 32.2, But the anger of Elihu the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. So he wasn't mad that Job had done any kind of sins. He was mad because it had gotten to the point where Job was saying, look, I was the man. I haven't done anything. Job's starting to get a little prideful, and it was starting to show in the way that he was responding back to his friends. And this is what made Elihu angry. A lot of people think Elihu just was just this abrasive, kind of bratty, know-it-all, and they kind of dismiss his entire speech here. But it's several chapters. He gets, more, he gets more mic time, if you will, than all of the other guys. All in a row, there's no interruption. He just gets, he just gets the stand, and he just gets to say his piece. So I don't think there's an accident that it's in there, but some people dismiss it. Some people think that Elihu is, is a, a type of Satan just sent there to kind of test him one more time. Some people think that the book, the, the section of the chapters with Elihu in them don't even belong there, that they were added later by somebody who thought, you know, the first half and the last half don't really go together unless we put these chapters in the middle to kind of make a good, healthy segue. Some people believe that. I believe that Elihu is a messenger sent from God. Now, a human messenger, flaws, warts, and all, but a messenger sent from God to prepare Job's heart for what God is going to tell him in the next coming chapters. So for all of chapter 32, basically, if you remember, if you missed it, go back and look. All of 32, Elihu basically says, are you ready for this, Job? Here it comes. I've got some wisdom from God, and it's going to knock your socks off. It's going to be so good. You guys ready? You guys ready? You ready? Here it comes. Because here, okay. Are you really ready? Because it's going to be great. Here it comes. And he just on and on. So really, almost for all of chapter 32, uh, of chapter 33, <coughs> 32 and 33, he just goes like, here it is. It's going to be great. And he's claiming to speak from God. This is important. So chapter 33, which we're going to do today, we're going to do 33, 34, 35. Three chapters, so buckle up. Get ready. 
I've had a Red Bull, I'm ready to go. Job 33, one through three, starts out like this. However, please hear my speech, Job. So again, he's continuing that theme of it's gonna be great, wait for it. However, please hear my speech, Job, and listen to all my words. Behold now, I open my mouth. My tongue in my mouth speaks. My words are from the integrity of my heart and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. I'm, now, I'm gonna start every sermon that way from now on. Behold, the tongue in my mouth speaks. But he's asserting again that he speaks from God. Job 33, verse 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So he's saying again, I, I speak from God. God has sent me. God's given me the message. The Spirit of God is in me and is going to have this great wisdom for you. Now on that he claims to speak for God. Now, most of us would say, if we ask, if you're a Christian, you would say this especially, I want to hear from God. Most of us would. But do we really want to hear from God or do we want to hear what God says from somebody else? Think about that for a minute. That's human nature. How many times has a kid, as a kid, maybe we've done it, say like, I don't want to ask mom, you ask mom. Dad's not in a good mood. I don't want to go ask dad. You go ask dad. So we want to hear it, but maybe not directly. We want a buffer somehow. We want something in between. Maybe an intercessor to go tell us what he said. Because hearing it directly for yourself, that can be difficult. We see even all the way back in Exodus. Remember the, the Israelites wandering the desert. Moses goes on Sinai. He he hears from God, and, and the people down below are seeing lightning and thunder and clouds and all kinds of commotion going on. And Moses comes down and essentially says, hey, you guys want to come hear what God says? And they're like, um, not really. Exodus 20, verse 19, if you want to write this down and read it later. Then they said to Moses, the Israelite people, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us or we'll die. They are totally afraid. They want to hear God's, God's word. They want to hear what God has to say. Then they trust in him. He is their deliverer, and they know it. But they're a little afraid of their own righteousness standing before God, like, he's going to see all my stuff. So I'd rather you spoke to him and then let me know what he says, and then we'll act on it as best we can. They're afraid to stand right before God. And that has always kind of been the case leading up until Jesus where we finally have an intercessor that we can stand before God and we can truly hear directly from him. But back in this time, they didn't have that. So one of the first things Elihu does here now, after he's done bragging about how great his words are gonna be, he reassures Job, look, I'm just a guy. I'm just a man like you. Chapter 33, verses six and seven. Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. He's like, dude, I'm, I'm just relaying a message. Don't be afraid. I'm one of you. Hear what I'm having to say. He's just trying to reassure Job here so he can relax, maybe let down his guard and just kind of hear what God has to say. Now, like we've talked about this being kind of a courtroom scene going back and forth with a prosecutor and witnesses and you're pleading your case and closing arguments. Like a good prosecutor, Elihu summarizes essentially Job's arguments up to this point. 
And he comes right out, and, he, and he's basically saying, so, let me get this right. You have said, verse 9, I am pure without wrongdoing. I am innocent, and there's no guilt in me. Verse 10, behold, he invents criticisms against me. He's accusing God of inventing charges against him. He counts me as his enemy. Verse 11, he puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths, meaning he, he puts my feet in the, the, the stocks like we're used to seeing. He, he's captured me, and he watches me. God knows everything that I do. So he's basically saying, are these not your words, Job? Is this not what you said? Verse 30, uh, chapter 33, verse 12, behold, let me respond to you. After reiterating his charges here, what Job has said, let me respond to you. You are not right in this, for God is greater than mankind. Okay, he's saying God's, in in a nutshell there, what he's saying is God's ways are so much higher than yours, you won't understand, but you're not right that he's done these things to you. This is where we see this leading. We see Elihu being led by the Holy Spirit and speaking the words that the Spirit is getting to you. Now, he gets to his point, Job 33, verse 13. Why do you complain to him that he does not give an account of his doings? So why, why are you complaining that God is not explaining himself to you? And then he goes on. So for the rest of this chapter, Elihu, we see introducing these ideas, these really deep key ideas that he had no way to know. Think about this. Today, we hear some of these things and we go, okay, of course, we knew that. But in his time, in his context and culture, they didn't know these things. This had to be a leading from the Spirit to Elihu in a message to deliver to Job. So number one, this idea, number one, that God speaks to people through dreams. God speaks to people through dreams. Job 33, verses 14, 15. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. We would call that that still small voice. God speaks, but it's quiet. Sometimes you can't even hear it. Verse 15. In a dream, a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people while they slumber in their beds. God speaks to people through dreams. The second thing is that God can and will and does speak to people audibly. Verse 16, then he opens the ears of people and horrifies them with warnings. Now, he opens the ears to people, okay, opens your ears so that you can hear God's voice. That second part is a little problematic, right? Horrifies them with warnings. I would say the the way to understand that is it's not he's trying to scare you. If you are warned, if you see a sign that says, warning, bridge out, okay, In itself, it's just information. If you decide, what the heck, let's try it anyway. Let's floor it and see what happens. Remember Dukes of Hazzard? Let's try it, see what happens. Then it's horrifying. So it's just information. It's just meant for instruction. But it can be horrifying if you don't heed it. So why does, why does God do these things? Why does God open the ears of people, speak to them in dreams? He does it for this reason. Elihu says this, verses 17 and 18. So that he may turn a person away from bad conduct and keep a man from pride. He keeps his soul back from the pit and his life from perishing by the spear. He's saying God does this. God will speak to you. God will speak to you in a dream. He'll speak to you audibly. He will do these things to keep you out of harm's way. 
He's trying to encourage Job here. Doesn't sound very encouraging sometimes, but he's trying, and these are things that Elihu would not have known. Let's look at what he's really saying here, kind of the bottom line. God will lead you first, okay? He'll, he'll lead you. Then, if that doesn't work, he'll warn you. And if warning doesn't work, he will put the fear into you. And if that doesn't work, he will inflict pain on you all in an effort to keep you from sin, to keep you from evil, to keep you out of danger. Sounds counterintuitive. He's going to scare me and maybe even hurt me to keep me safe. Yes. Yes. Job 33, 19 and 20, Elihu goes on. A person is also rebuked by pain in his bed and with constant complaint in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his soul food that should, he should crave. His flesh wastes away from sight, and his bones, which were not seen, stick out. Then his soul comes near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. So even pain and suffering, to the point to where you don't even want to eat. This is not a perfect picture of Job where he is right now pain and suffering and bones sticking out and he can't even eat and he's sick. This is, this is a picture of where he is. Now, I want to introduce a concept here. It's called redemptive suffering. Now, there is a theology of redemptive, redemptive suffering, which is very much a Catholic theology. And I want to draw a clear distinction between those two things. The Catholic theology of redemptive suffering essentially says that suffering can, personal suffering can pay the price for your sins. Personal sacrifice, personal suffering can atone for your own sins. Not only yours, but those of someone else. Here's the problem. The danger in thinking that, the danger of that theology is thinking that, number one, self-inflicted pain is a righteous and holy thing that can pay the price for your sins. We see that all the time with certain, certain um, denominations, certain sects will, will actually inflict pain on themselves because they feel that it's righteous. It's a way to atone for their sins. The danger is thinking that that is something that God would ordain. The heresy in that is thinking that you need to do something because Jesus didn't accomplish it already. Jesus accomplished that. Jesus suffered and was crucified on the cross to pay the price for you in a physical, bodily, punishing, torturous way. You don't need to add anything to it. He has done that. That's the theology of redemptive suffering. Set that aside. That is not what we're talking about, but I did want to be clear on what the difference is. This redemptive suffering here is this. It's this idea that God will use our pain and suffering and the things that come our way in life. He will use that to humble us, to grow us, to refine us. In this case, it's pride from Job's life. And ultimately, he will use that in us, through us, to bring glory to himself. That's exactly what's happening here. And in Job's case specifically, the idea was to keep him from sinning, humble him so that he doesn't have those things that were making him prideful before, and to keep him from that. We see that very idea 
crystallized here in what Peter said. 2,000 years after Job, the apostle Peter said this, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here's the important part right here. Or it's all important. Here's an important thing to note here. Verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. In other words, suffering for something that you have caused and brought upon yourself is not righteous suffering. That's just a bad choice on your part. That's not what God is endorsing here. Verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, meaning you suffer in the name of Jesus, he is not to be ashamed, but it is to glorify God in this name. So, so Peter is really crystallizing that there, that look, suffering that you bring upon yourself because of bad choices, that's not what God is using here. God is using those things that you do in his name to glorify himself. So whether or not, ultimately it's really up to us, whether or not our trials that we go through, whether that's a refining process that God can use for our good and for his glory, that's up to us. We can take the trials that come our way and we can live them in the flesh. We can do the things that, that the internet says we ought to do or respond how our friend says we ought to respond and not have that be used for God's glory, or we can choose instead to glorify God. The problem is, not the problem, the opposite of a problem, the good part is that we are never left alone to figure out that path in life. We have an advocate. We have a Holy Spirit. In this case, Job 33, verses 23, 24, Elihu calls it an interceding angel. He has no concept of Jesus yet or really even of a Holy Spirit, if there is an interceding angel for him, one out of a thousand, to remind a person of what is right for him, and he is gracious to him and says, free him from going down in the pit. I have found a ransom. So he's talking about this interceding angel is what Elihu knows it as. That term in the Hebrew, interceding is, is the term lutz, L-U-T-S, lutz, and it means an interpreter. Angel Angel is a common term, and it's the same one. It's in the Hebrew, it's malach, and, and the definition is just a messenger. So you have a messenger sent from God to interpret what's happening. And in this case, really, Elihu's kind of describing himself being sent to deliver this message. Isn't that the very role of the Holy Spirit? To interpret and to deliver messages. Paul talked about it. The Apostle Paul talked about it again 2,000 years later, Romans 8, 26, 27. Now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Does anybody know, my Bible scholars out there, what the very next verse is? Okay, that was Romans 8, 26, 27. What's the next verse? And don't say 28. 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What we see here is Job being called, being put in, put in front of the steamroller at this point that is Satan for God's purpose. And the promise is that all things will be used for good if, here's the catch, Everybody's always looking for a catch. Like, what's the catch with this gospel message of Christ? The catch is we have to listen and obey. That's the catch. You've got the instructions. You've got everything you need to navigate this life in a godly way, to give God glory. We've got access to the cheat sheet. But we have to do it. We have to not only listen We have to obey. Job 33, verse 26. Then he will pray to God and he will accept him so that he may see his face with joy and he will restore his righteousness to that person. This is Elihu saying things that he's got no way to know. Verses 27, 28. He will sing to people and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right and it's not proper for me. He has redeemed my soul from going into the pit and my life will see the light. Oh, that is so awesome. And then Elihu ends his little thought like this. You can now, here's this point where you can see this shift. Elihu says this, verses 31 to 33. Pay attention, Job. Listen to me. Keep silent and let me speak. Then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I would take pleasure in justifying you. If not, listen to me. Keep silent and I will teach you wisdom. All right, so he's gone from... The Holy Spirit said this to me. The Spirit of God has given me this message to relay to you, Job, for your encouragement. But now that I'm done with that, I still have some time left, and I've got the mic. I'm on stage. Let me tell you now what I think. It's a very clear shift between him saying, the Spirit gave this to me, and pay attention now because i got some nuggets I'm about to drop on you. Had Elihu stopped right there, he probably would be remembered a little differently than he is now. Now it's like he's kind of troublesome, kind of a, uh, we don't know about that guy if he even belongs there. Had he stopped there with delivering that pure message, that encouragement, correction, yes, but encouraging message, life-giving message from the Spirit, if he'd have stopped there, we'd have been okay. The problem is, remember at the beginning where it said Elihu was burning with anger? He's emotional at this point. And he said what God told him to say, and he's like, but wait, there's more. I'm going to now tell you what I think of this. He's not interrupted. There's no dialogue back and forth. He's got the floor. They're all listening. You can imagine this young guy. He's got these three sage guys over here and Job, and they're all listening to him. Nobody's even interrupting what he's saying. Like normal, it's back and forth. None of this. He's given a speech, and he's got the floor. My question to you is think about this. Elihu is speaking from the spirit. Now we see him start speaking from the flesh. And there's a clear definition. Have you ever been arguing with somebody in an emotional way? Think about that. If the answer is no, I want to talk to you after service. You can tell me how to argue in a non-emotional way because I am not good at that. But here's the problem. Here's what happens. You might start out speaking some truth. You might start out speaking some wisdom. There's going to be some good nuggets in there, truth and wisdom. And at some point, what happens? Inevitably, we run out of that 
and we start having to inject ourselves. So we might go from what the Spirit is leading us to say, what needs to be said, what Elihu is doing, and then we start speaking from our flesh. And this is exactly what Elihu is doing here, proof that God uses flawed vessels. That's the danger. When we speak, that we will inject liberal doses of ourself in what wisdom the Spirit has given us. This is one reason. And Jackie, I'm not just saying this because you're here. This was one reason why training about being able to hear and perceive what the Spirit is saying and how to then interpret that and speak it correctly, get out of the way, in other words, why that is so important. People say to me all the time, why do we need a class to learn how to hear from the Holy Spirit? You don't. We can all hear from the Holy Spirit. We can all perceive the Holy Spirit. The difference is, What's from the Spirit and what's from me? How do I sift out those things that are from my flesh and just get left with this life-giving nugget that is the truth that comes from the Holy Spirit? And then how do I relay that without injecting any of myself in it? It's easier said than done, and it's why training is so necessary and why it's so important that we do that. I believe here, that Elihu was sent as a messenger to deliver a message of encouragement to Job. I believe that. But he's feeling his oats now. He's got stage, and he can't resist, just like a human being can't resist injecting his own. So we're going to move on really quick here. Job 34, verses 1 through 3. Then Elihu continued. So he's delivered that nugget. Elihu continued and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and listen to me, you who understand. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. He's like, get ready, because this is going to taste good, what I'm about to tell you. So here we go again. He's fallen back into what his friends have been doing. Job 33, verse 4. Let us choose for ourselves what is right. Let us understand among ourselves what is good. As Pastor Gabe would say, wait, what? Did he really just say, let us choose for ourselves what is good? Let us understand among ourselves how many ways could that go wrong? Couldn't possibly go wrong, right? He literally said that. And that is proof that God will use a flawed vessel. See, if God wanted to deliver that message pure and straight and unadulterated, he would have sent an angel or he would have sent his spirit to speak that directly. God uses flawed vessels to deliver his message. And in this case, Elihu's reinforcing that he is a flawed vessel. Verse 34, 7 and 8 or chapter 34, 7 and 8. What man is like Job, who drinks up derision like water, who goes in company with the workers of injustice and walks with wicked people? He's fallen back into the same, just parroting the things that those first three guys had said. And we're back now to the theology of retribution. Remember, that's, the, that's really the theological term for what I had said at the beginning. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. That's the theology of retribution. It's not entirely wrong. It just doesn't paint the whole picture, especially with the grace and redemption that is through Jesus. It's got no, no way to understand that. But that doesn't stop Elihu from continuing. 34 verse 12, God certainly will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. He's right. 
He's absolutely right in saying that, but not for reasons that he understands. Job 34, 21, 22. For his eyes are upon the ways of a person, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of injustice can hide himself. I think there's nothing that you do, Job, no secret you can have that God won't know. He's basically saying, you don't even need to plead your case before God because he knows it all already, which is true but not in the way that Elihu understands it. He's falling in this same trap that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did, and he's taken this personally now. This, this affront, this Job holding on to his righteousness, he's taken it personally. Verses 35, 36, Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tested to the limit, because he answers like sinners. Meaning he's not already being tested to the limit, what more limit could there be than Job's already? But now, now Elihu just turns it up to 11. Turns it all the way up to 11. The red 11. My spinal tap reference there. Anybody ever hear a spinal tap reference in church before? All right, you can take that down. That totally failed. We'll edit that. We'll edit that out. Some of you go, what is that? I don't even get it. Okay. Job 35, verse 3. I'm cracking myself up, and that's all that matters. Job 35, verse 3. For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What benefit will I have more than if I had sinned? He's saying that Job said that. Did Job really say that? Anybody remember? He's essentially saying that, that if I'm good or if I'm bad, what difference does it make to God? Did he say that? If we go back to chapter 21, verse 15, Job said, Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would, he, what would we gain if we plead with him? So essentially he is he's saying, God is so big and so great. What could we possibly do to sway him one way or the other? He doesn't need us. There's nothing we can do to change him. But the problem is, this is the difference between a fact and truth. Because the fact is, Job said those words. In court, if they pulled out, did you truly say, who is the Almighty and what would we gain? The answer is, yeah, I did. But out of context, it's not, it's not truth. Because Job was saying in context, a wicked man would say that. We need to know this, but that doesn't matter to Elihu at all. Continuing this steam train that he's got rolling now, he's not slowing down. Verse 4, I will answer you and your friends with you. Chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Look at the heavens and see, and look at the clouds. They are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your wrongdoings are many, what do you do to him? He's saying, whether you're good or you're bad can't possibly affect God. Can't have anything. To, why would God even care? He's so far above us, tiny humans. There's nothing we could do to have any bearing on him. Now, this is another theological idea that I want to introduce to you. It's called aseity. I got a slide here. That's just the, the way that it's spelled, aseity. Aseity is the concept that said, that said, God exists in and of himself, does not need anything else. God is not waiting for our input so that he can finish his plans and purposes. God is not, doesn't need our help to create the mountains Revelation 1.8, 
capsulizes, encapsulates that theory. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's who God is. He doesn't need us to accomplish anything. He uses us to accomplish things for his glory. In other words, it's not all about us. Hard concept for some of us to get. But if you take that idea to the extreme, theological extreme, which is what Elihu is doing here, you would conclude that God has no interest in humans. This is where it goes astray. God doesn't need us, but God does care about us. God cares about us enough to use us and allow us to experience the joy that is being used by him for his purposes. Job has actually shown already that he knows better than that. Back in chapter 7, verse 17, when he said this, he said, What is man that you exalt him and that you are concerned about him? That's a rhetorical question. He's amazed that God could even care. God, you, you did all this. You are so amazing, and you still care about me? What am I? Job's got a firm grasp on that, but Elihu seems to have this selective memory. Like He's already said, I was there. I listened to everything you said, but he kind of forgot that part. Verse 12, he says, There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil people. He's saying, God's not going to listen to you because you're evil. In his mind, everybody's evil. 35 verse 14, the case is before him and you must wait for him. That's how he finishes this chapter. Saying it's all in, you just got to wait for God's judgment on this. The next two chapters that we'll talk about are are a completion. Elihu kind of gets back on track kind of finishes his little section of the message in a way that is a leading from God. But we clearly see where he finished here completely in the flesh. What's our takeaway then? To conclude this message, to wrap it up, what's our takeaway? I believe our takeaway, number one to me, is that God will use a flawed vessel to deliver a message. And the best that we can do is to seek the Holy Spirit in what we do and try and stay out of the way, try not to mess up the message any more than we have to. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. The Holy Spirit will guide you. Pretty much all we can do is misinterpret or get it wrong when we deliver it to somebody else. The pure message can only come either directly from an angel or from the Spirit of God himself. But God uses Elihu Why would he do that? God knew that Elihu would have this tendency to sway from the message and maybe couldn't keep it together long enough to just stop when he was ahead, but he still used it. Had Elihu done that and had this ability to just say, okay, I delivered that, now I'm done, and walk away? Who here is not good at stopping while they're ahead? I am not. Elihu's not good at it either. He could not help but add his two cents. And how often do we tarnish the gospel message of Jesus by adding our two cents? By adding our interpretation of what we think that is not from the Holy Spirit, that is not something that is life-giving, that is not something that's encouraging. We take the gospel message. Gospel means good news, right? It's good We take that and somehow we have to add our two cents and make it into a weapon that we can use to bludgeon somebody else. 
That's what Elihu has done here. God has given him this life-giving, good, truthful message to help prepare Job's heart for what's to come, to help him, uh, to encourage him to hold on and to persevere, and he's added his two cents now. He's taken that good message and he's reformed it into something that he can hammer Job with. Sometimes it's just best to leave well enough alone and stop while we're ahead. The Apostle James said this about wisdom that comes from God. This is James chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Write that down, because the next time you want to give somebody advice, take a second and remind yourself of this chunk of Scripture. I'll read it to you. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. If the word that you're delivering, if you're saying, Here's what I feel God is telling me. Here's what the Spirit is telling me for you. If you're going to do that, run it by this filter first. If it doesn't fit that, it's not from God. When we claim to speak from God, for God, we better be sure that we're hearing correctly and that we're staying out of the way. Elihu is not able to do that, and so his message to Job gets tarnished. And we see in the next couple chapters where he will try and and recover that before God speaks in. So next week, as Pastor Gabe said, she'll be teaching. She'll be teaching some more of her Wait What series. It's I'd love to hear it. I'm sad that I'm going to miss it, but I'll be, I'll be there and I'll be watching it on the phone. Um, but after that, we see Elihu finish up and then God gets to weigh in. And then we find out what's been happening. We find out what God has to say about all these things that have been happening. I can't wait for that. I hope that you, that you join us. Let's, let's wrap this up and just pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you send your spirit to us. We don't have to follow a rule book of how to live our lives and just hope we're doing it well enough. Lord, you send your spirit to us so that we can hear directly from you. We are reconciled to you. We can stand before you. We can hear from you. We can commune with you. We can feel your love for us. We don't have to guess whether you're there, whether you care for us. You can tell us yourself. And Lord, we never have to walk through the trials of this life on our own. And Lord, I personally repent of times where I have used my own wisdom to navigate something that only you could navigate. I repent of those times where I've taken your word, your wisdom, and I have twisted it by adding my own two cents. Lord, help me to set aside who I am and be a reflection of who you are. Help me to bring glory to you by the things I say and do. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together. If you're new here, we take communion together every week.
on the table in the back, we have little single serve cups if you want to grab that. If you're out there online, grab whatever you have, leftover coffee and bagel from this morning, whatever you have, grab that. The elements themselves are not important. It's what they symbolize. The first one is the body. The body of Jesus broken for you. You don't have to subject yourself to pain and suffering and punishment intentionally just to try and attain some kind of repentance or or atonement for what you've done. Jesus did that. He did it once and for all, and it is sufficient. If you take that and you accept that sacrifice, take the body. The blood of Christ shed for you. Jesus calls it the the new covenant. The blood is the new covenant by which we are reconciled to God, by which we are atoned. We are reconciled before God. His blood did it. No more sacrifice, no more animals, no more trying our best, but the price for our sin has been paid once and for all by Jesus. Today is Pentecost Sunday, the birth of the church. That day in the upper room with all the apostles and the Holy Spirit of God came upon them to empower them to go out and accomplish the will and the purposes of God in ways that they could never do in their own. That power today is in us. That's the moment when the church was born and it wasn't just a list of rules. That church now lives in you, lives in each one of us. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us everything that we need to be the reflection of God in this world that so desperately needs Him. Amen.